in your Bibles to Titus 3. Titus 3. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've known, you know that we've been going through the book of Titus. And so today, we are coming to the grand finale, the, the season finale of the book of Titus. This is the end of Titus, the book that we have seen that the master architect desires for the congregation to grow. He sent a subcontractor, Paul, to send a message, a blueprint to Titus, who is working to follow the directions. The goal is a healthy congregation, a sturdy home, a home that is a testament to God's work in the life of his people. A congregation sound in faith and ready to face external elements of wind and rain, but there's just a few unfinished items. There are some beams that have to get removed because they are molding. There are some termites in the foundation that have to get replaced. Where do they find the replacement material? Well, we're not left to wonder. So turn to Titus 3, verse 8, and we'll read through 15, because these are the final remarks. And Paul says to Titus this, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Then when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance that we have to sing beautiful songs that recognize your greatness in our lives. We thank you for the chance that we can have sit down as brothers and sisters in Christ and partake in the body and the blood of Jesus. Father God, we, we don't take these things lightly. We know that we live in a world of darkness that needs light, and we know that we have to be fruitful in this world. So Father God, I pray that the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart, and the things that I think all reflect honoring of you. And please help me hide behind your cross and make you shine forth through me. And may the hearts of those in this congregation be receptive to your word and be able to be planted with the seed of your word and help it to grow and and to be be a grand harvest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Chip and Joanna Gaines from the popular HDTV show, Fixer Upper. They enter into this house. The house is a wreck. The outside, the 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 ceiling looks like it's fallen apart. The inside, the floors are, are all kind of sloped. There's a lot of problems in this house. And they enter in, and they come in, and they see this family. And there's this family inside, and they're like screaming internally. They're like, please help us with this house. This house is a mess. And so, like all good renovation shows, 
Joanna lays out plans for the house. She says, we need to do this. We need to change this. This will be helpful for this family inside. And then all of a sudden, the scene goes to a commercial, right? And we're left wondering what will happen. What's going to happen in this house? Will it be renovated? Will there be a happy ending with the owners? Will they be happy with the changes? What unforeseen problems are going to arise? What seems to happen in every house is after they remove things, there's a lot of problems in the structure of the house. There's some beams that have to get removed. There's things that will hinder progress. So reading Titus is kind of like watching the first half of a renovation show. So we see about all these complex issues. We see all these um, problems in the congregation. Is this congregation going to commit to good works? Will the truth of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection transform these crumbling congregations into stately mansions? Well, we're going to leave that hanging for a minute. For most people, their favorite part of renovations is demolition day. In demolition day, everybody gets a sledgehammer, a crowbar, and they start prying off parts of the walls, and they just destroy everything, pull it all out, and you can see the frame. You can see the bones of this house. And for this house to be beautiful on the outside, it also has to be healthy on the inside. And so what they've done is they've removed it and they open it up to inspection. They have to care for the foundations or the roots of the house. So what's going to be the fruit of their labor? In Titus, Paul is concerned with faithful Christians. And he tells Titus that there are false teachers who have infiltrated the congregations and are wrecking the inside of these homes. He says there's termites in the foundation. He said there are time wasters who have infiltrated the church. And he says that in order for you to be fruitful, you have to set this in order. So remember, every member of a local church is a brick in the structure. We all have a spot in this construction. If you are not producing fruit, that is, you are not displaying the good works that Paul is talking about, you might have dead roots. But because of God's plan for the church, you must be fruitful. Because of God's plan for the church, you must be fruitful. So we see in verses 9 through 11, Paul highlights again who these people are and what to do with them. He identifies some hindrances to being fruitful and then some helps to fruitfulness. The people of God have to remove divisive ideas and divisive people. Sandwiched in verse 12 through 15, among these final greetings that Paul identifies, he says there are some helps to fruitfulness. So we're going to start with 9 through 11, and then we'll go back and hit 8, and we'll do 8, 12 through 15. So because of God's plan for the church, we have to avoid hindrances to fruitfulness. So two types of bad roots are addressed in 9 through 11, divisive ideas and divisive people. So remember that chapter 1, Paul warned us about false teachers who have infiltrated the home. There's false teachers bringing in these ideas that are damaging households. And he's circling back to it here because this is a pressing concern on the island of Crete where these, these churches are. And actually, it's kind of a pressing concern for us today as well. So let's read verse 9. He says, but, be, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
So we have four errors that are mentioned in verse 9. Paul tells, us, tells Titus what the congregation needs to avoid. And if you would be fruitful, if you want to be fruitful, you have to also avoid these four things. So let's look at them. Foolish controversies. You know, these are arguments about things that have no real purpose. These are arguments about things that really are just speculation. Something like this can get into a church and divide it from the inside. All of a sudden, somebody likes meatloaf more than they like bananas. I don't know. I'm just making up things now. But they like two different things, right? And what it does is it turns into a group who only like bananas and a group that only likes oranges. And what happens to a church? All of a sudden, now you have a church split, and you have a banana church and an orange church, right? It's silliness. It sounds silly, but that's what happens because they're arguing over foolish controversies. It's dividing something that's foolishness. And we see that Paul is very concerned about this because he talks about it in 1 Timothy, he talks about it in 2 Timothy, and he talks about it here in Titus. It's important that we don't separate the words foolish from controversies or foolishness from debates because it's foolish debates, not just controversies, not just debates, because some things are important to discuss and to argue over, but some things are not. And he's talking about foolish ones. Any controversy that does not pertain to the truth or foolish contending that consumes so much of our times and our lives that it becomes endless and worthless. Paul says that it's, it's a time waster. And then we have genealogies. You know, the Jews were very concerned with genealogies for good reason. Because if you could not identify your genealogy in, Jewish, in your Jewish background, you weren't part of the tribes of Israel. And if you read in the Old Testament, some Levites tried to come and become priests, and they couldn't prove their genealogy. So it's important that they knew their genealogy. But what Paul is talking about here is something a little bit different. And he talks about it also in 1 Timothy 1.4. He says, but basically the essence is that some people are spending their time speculating about the importance of pedigree or thinking that it has some type of religious significance. Paul says it was endless and ultimately a time waster, essentially divisive. And so what he has has in view here is this prideful concern over your background, your prideful concern over who you are or how much higher it would make you in some kind of hierarchy in the church. Once again, divisive. Then we have dissensions. So this word is also used in other letters, and it's always mentioned with jealousy and rivalry. This is all about me. It describes a person that fights over words, quarrels over words, not just once, but ongoing arguments. This is someone who argues over things all the time just to divide people, not just because he likes arguments, because some people do, but he just wants to divide the congregation. He's trying to make himself have a team on one end and a team on the other, an orange team and a banana team, right? Then we have quarrels about the law. So many of these false teachers brought in arguments about the law, which is the Jewish law that we're talking about, and it seems like it's a common problem in the early church, as Paul brings it up a lot. And in fact, he mentions this Titus in Galatians 2, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it to you. I just want you to listen to this situation. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. 
in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In Galatians, like in this book back in Titus, Paul and Titus are dealing with these false brothers who sought to divide people just based off the law, the Old Testament law. Paul concludes this verse with an explanation of ultimately how fruitless and idle and empty these last four things are. So if you look at verse 9, he says these are unprofitable and worthless. He's reminding them how worthless this is. And as a congregation, we have a duty to get rid of these errors. We have to remove them from our congregation. But what comes with bad ideas? Divisive people as well. And so unfruitful and helpful ideas are usually brought by people, and they are often the ones that keep them going. These unhelpful ideas that were brought up, these four of them, really the root of them was a person or people. And so we have divisive peoples now that Paul turns to in 10 through 11. So he says this in 10 through 11. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is, is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, this is a threefold process that's also outlined in Matthew 18, and it's what's called church discipline. So you can't only cut out the offending ideas, but you have to cut out the roots as well. In order for a church to be fruitful, it has to protect itself from false teaching and divisive people. A person that is trying to divide the congregation is to be removed from that congregation. Now, remember that the ultimate goal in church discipline is reconciliation. And there's a reason why Paul is being very harsh here, and it sounds very harsh to our modern ears. So the first step is admonishment. It's to instruct. It's to warn the person. And you'll never guess what the second step is admonishment. It's to warn and instruct the word. You come to this person two times, which is really generous. If this person is causing division in the church, you come to him once and you say, hey, this is what I heard is going on. What's happening with you? And you talk to him and then you, you give him a warning. And then they do it again. You go back and you talk to him again. But then there's a third. At this point, if the person refuses to respond positively, then the difficult yet necessary step to dismissal or rejection as some translations will say. So you measure twice and you cut once. So verse 11 makes it clear that dismissal is grounded in knowledge of the divisive person's views and actions. Every single fact has to be gathered. The grammar here supports that that person is in a settled position. It's not just some person thinking, well, I thought this was a good idea. Now I'm not really sure. You want to know if that person is really secure in his position. Person is self-condemned, it says. He knows. He knows that he is sinful. It's clearly he's guilty. The person is dividing the people of God, and he's producing unfruitfulness. So this process really protects the church, and it protects individuals. Because if the church does not cut out these rotten supports, 
it will fall in on itself. So if you let termites stay in your house, you're in for a lot of trouble. If you just let them lease a, lease a spot in your house, you're in for some trouble, but you have to remove them completely. If you let this divisive person have free reign in your congregation, you're opening up yourself to all manner of problems because they are trying to break people into groups and having us versus them mentality. This also protects the individual in a congregation. Having a process allows us to course correct from our own mistakes. If the goal of the church is to help people become more like Christ, then having a group of believers around you to help you when you stray is invaluable. Because guess what? We don't always know all the answers. Imagine that. As Christians, we can sometimes get wrapped up into controversy that has very little life-changing hope. We can get wrapped up in controversy to the detriment of everything else. In fact, we can use our own desires or uh, desire to dispute, to discover the truth, or to work out the details of a complex issue to allow us to go off and hide our personal sins. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in an intricate Greek word or a Greek Hebrew word or some, some complex thing in, the, in Scripture that we hide our own personal sin because we don't want to have to deal with it. And so this allows us this, this discovering of our own time-wasting habits to cut it out and to focus on what's important. If you would be fruitful as a Christian, you have to avoid this foolish time-waster. How many of you have ever seen the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? Have you ever watched videos of it on YouTube or, or seen a, a video in a, in a movie? It's really phenomenal because you have these men that are dressed in perfect uniform, intricately polished stuff. And if you know anything about it, you know that there's a certain height requirement of the soldiers, so I would never qualify. But there's a certain height requirement for these soldiers to be at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And they spend their days polishing and making sure that their uniforms are perfect and starched. Everything about their uniform has to be perfect. But then most militaries will have a second type of soldier or military member. And that second type of person usually doesn't have the most beautiful dress uniform ready all the time. They usually don't have the most squared away outfits, but they practice their battle drills over and over and over again. And if you were to take the guy from the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and throw him into a battlefield situation, you're not going to get the same results as you would if you took some dirty soldier who's been in the field for the last three months practicing battle drills. The effectiveness is not going to be the same. So they have two types of armies, two types of soldiers. You have your units that are used for parades, and you have your units that are used to fight wars. If you were to take that unit and fight, they would be ineffective. They were too busy polishing their buttons. They're too busy making sure their uniform looks nice to be effective in the battle. Which one would you rather be in this war for your souls, in the war for the souls of your family, in the war for the souls of your community? But also, because of God's plan for the church, we should seek out helps to fruitfulness. We've got to seek out helps to fruitfulness. Because of God's plan for the church, we seek out helps to fruitfulness. And this is 8, 12 through 15. So in Paul's farewell, we see he has a concern for believers to be fruitful. And we will see that fruitfulness needs farmers. Fruitfulness needs helpers. 
And fruitfulness is a result of cultivation. So first, helpers. There needs to be helpers. So let's look at verse 12. Paul mentions that he will send Artemis or Tychicus to relieve Titus so that he can go meet with Paul. Now, we don't know very much about Artemis, but we do hear about Tychicus in Acts 20 through 4. Isn't that a cool name, Tychicus, by the way? I've been practicing saying that name for the last week, so I don't mess it up up here. Tychicus. All right, and we know a little bit about him because he's mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4, he was, which indicates that he was from Asia. And in Ephesians 6, 21 and Colossians 4, 7, we see that he's a beloved brother and faithful minister. So Paul is not just sending any old guy down to replace Titus. He's sending someone who he has been working with. He has been training. And so he's sending this guy to help the churches to continue the process of building them up. Paul is planning to winter in Nicopolis, which there are several Nicopolises that are mentioned and that we know about, because basically it just means victory. And so it's just like, hey, this is a victory city. And so they've named several of them. But we think that this is in a nice area of Greece where it can be a little bit safer for Paul. And, he, and you know, Paul has a pattern of wintering in certain areas because you can't travel during the wintertime because of the dangerous uh, weather. And he would, he would find places where he could mentor other believers. And he would also find, he'd have his people come and see him, and he could train them some more. And so Paul was very concerned with sending the right type of helpers to the church, to strategic locations. And so he, either choose, he chooses either Artemis or Tychicus, and he'll have that additional help replace Titus and build on that work that he had done. And then Paul asks this in verse 13. He says, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on the way. We see that they lack, and see that they lack nothing. So now we have two other men. We have Zenus the lawyer and Apollos. So Apollos is mentioned many times in Scripture. He and Zenus likely are the ones that are bringing this letter. Very likely, these are the guys that brought the letter to him. And so we can deduce that this was a Christian ministry-related journey that they're on because of the language that they use here is always used as a missionary endeavor, this journey. And so Zenus the lawyer is being mentioned. What's interesting about Zenus the lawyer? Well, first off, this guy has actually a a real profession, right? He has a real job, unlike some of the other guys. And so he says, this guy's a lawyer. And likely it's Roman law just because based on Zenus's name, he has a Roman name. And so it's likely he's a Roman lawyer, which is a pretty good job. And it reminds us that our occupation is less important than our service to God. And I'm thinking about the impact that you can have at your, your place of business, at your work. You can, you can meet more people and influence more people than I could on a daily basis. And the same thing with, it, with all of us as Christians. We, our occupation is part of our mission field. The people that you interact with, you have to reach with the gospel. And every Christian has an obligation to reach others for Christ. These are gospel helpers in the watering of Christians, those sent to help build Christ's church to increase fruitfulness. And then the next part is cultivation. So we have our helpers, now we have cultivation. And for cultivation, he says, learn to devote good works. In verse 14, he says, let our people Learn to devote themselves to good works. 
And he's indicating once again that people who belong to God, people who follow the teachings of the apostle rather than, rather than those who follow false teachers, are to cultivate fruitfulness. Let's read verse 14 and let it kind of sink in for a minute. It says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul tells Titus, because they are the people of God, they need to make a profession, an occupation of doing good works for pressing needs. Here we have the summation of the letter. This is kind of like the wrapping up of the letter. And because we are the people of God, we do good works and are fruitful, fruitful in life and in the world around us. So every Christian must be fruitful. We know that the fruitless branches will be cut off and thrown into the fire, according to John 15, 2, which we read earlier today. The good fruit, of course, is nourished from the vine. And where is this vine? It's Jesus Christ. So apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do no good thing. We can have no good fruit. So Paul is not saying that this is good works devoid of Jesus Christ. This is good works because of Jesus Christ. Just like in the center of the passage, we're reminded that the heartbeat of good works comes from Jesus Christ. Paul sees this danger in unfruitfulness. If we don't bear fruit, it can indicate that we do not belong to God. If you don't bear any fruit in your life, it could indicate that you don't really belong to God. You're not connected to the vine in the first place. Or it could mean that you have hindrances. There could be termites in your foundation, time wasters. You may be so addicted to something else that you cannot be useful for the glory of God. You may be so addicted to Facebook, or you may be addicted to the new Call of Duty game that just came on the iPhone. Don't ask me how I know that. Right? You may, you may be addicted to, to Netflix or to movies or to shows, or you may be addicted to foolish controversies or gossip. These are all hindrances to your good works. So what is this fruit that Paul is referring to? Well, just look up in Titus 2. In Titus 2, he lists out for us in a super practical manner the good works that he's talking about that we have to do. He says, older men, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love. Every Christian must be like this. Our good works should be done out of love of Christ to others because Christ loved us first. That means that we help Zenith, the lawyer, and Apollo on their way. You know, we're supporting missionaries that hold to the apostles' teaching. You know, our church, our congregation has a, has a, a, um, a distinctive, so to speak, of who we are. We are a missionary church. A lot of our budget, in fact, more than half of our budget goes to missions. This is amazing. That's what we should be like. We should support those going on the journey, farmers for the gospel. So not only do we do that, but we do that in our lives as well. We, we, we uh, support the things of the gospel in our lives, and we cut out the hindrances to the gospel as well. So a few years back, I had this great idea. I was going to start a garden in my backyard, right? I planned it out. I built these, uh, these little square things. I don't know what they're called, rectangles, planter boxes, I guess, I put soil in them. I found the right soil. I did all the Google searches that you're supposed to do. I'm like, I have no background in this, so I have no idea what I'm doing. But I'm like, this would be great. I'm going to do a garden. I want cucumbers and tomatoes. Well, the good news is that my cucumbers grew faithfully. 
They grew well. They were, they were, they were just amazing. But my tomatoes were not so faithful. They did not produce much fruit. And so I did a little examination, right? I looked at them. I said, what is hindering the growth of my tomatoes? Well, what happened was that they grew up really fast together. And some of them choked out the other ones. And so what was happening was they were overcrowded. And because they were overcrowded, a lot of the, a lot of the branches could not be saved. And I had to cut them out. I got rid of them. But then I only had a few stems left. But these stems grew up and produced enormous amounts of fruit compared to what they would have if I had just left them. And so the same thing happens in the church. God will allow us to grow, but he removes the unfruitful at times. He clips out the unfruitful parts in order that the fruitful remnant can produce more. So what's hindering your growth and your fruitfulness? And before we get to that, let's look at verse 15. And this is kind of where do we go from here? What happens next? The way forward, as I said better in my slide than I did in my notes. The way forward. Acts 15, or, uh, Titus, 15, or, Titus 3, verse 15 says this. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. And this grace that he's referring to is the grace which issues from the Father and the Son, which we learned about in chapter 1, verse 4 which made its historical epiphany or arrival in Christ in chapter 2, verse 11, and by which we have been justified in chapter 3, verse 7. So what will be the final conclusion for Sierra Vista Baptist Church? What will be the final conclusion for you? What will your life be characterized by? What fruit are you producing If you're not producing any fruit right now, what is hindering you? What is choking the soil of your heart to keep you from producing fruit? It could be that you're not connected to the vine, or it could be that you're connected to something worthless that's not producing any joy. And as we have seen in the book of Titus, it's full of practical guidance for us. And Christians must live in an unchristian world in a fruitful manner. So it's kind of sad for me to say farewell to our sermon series on Titus. You know, you can always go back and watch the reruns online. You can watch the old, old, uh, old sermon notes on this. But it's interesting that we dug up such interesting truth here. So when Chip and Joanna Gaines, they finish working on a house, what do they do? Well, they print out this big photo of what the church, or the church, what the house used to look like. And they have it there, and it's this big banner. I mean, it's bigger than our Do This in Remembrance of Me banners. I mean, it's huge. And they have them on wheels, and what they do is they'll open it up and have the family on the other side, and they'll see this revealing of this new house. And so the picture is of the old house, and you're staring at this old house, and the owner's standing in front of the picture and wait for Chip and Joanna to pull it apart, and they pull it open and see what this new house looks like, what the fruit of their labors were. So when Chip and Joanna um, open this up, it's also my prayer that when we get to the point in our lives where we pierce the veil from this life into the next, that you will see clearly the fruits of your labor. 
Will you be ashamed that you did not cultivate more fruit in your life? Will you be able to stand in front of the Lord at the last day and say, well done, good and faithful servant? We will only know in the next life what our fruit does. So my prayer for you is that you would show today that you are saved. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when things slow down, not when the kids are out of the home, but today you must bear much fruit. And with God's help, we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, What a joy it is to, to study it and to read it and to be able to hear what you would have us say, or hear what you would ha- say to us today from your word. God, we, uh, we're thankful for the ones that came before us who faithfully lifted up scripture and brought it forward so that we also can hold on to this faith that was once and all, for all delivered to the saints. Pray that we take this truth and move it into our lives and share it with those around us this coming week. Father God, don't let us delay. Give us opportunities to be fruitful through the gospel sharing, through um, caring for one another and their needs. And all these things we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.